that will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming from up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tulane, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. In Exodus 17, when Israel left Egypt under Moses, Amalek fought against them. And in Exodus 17, 14, the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And in verse 16, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies, in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Now's the time. God orders Saul to utterly destroy this Amalek tribe. Now, several things we ought to say about that. One is that it appears that the Amalekites were nomadic herdsmen, nomadic tribesmen, and there seems to have been several groups of Amalekites. Saul is sent to wipe out this group. That doesn't necessarily mean that there wouldn't be other Amalekites that would also have to be dealt with in time. It's interesting, from the time that the Amalekites attacked Israel, when they came out from Egypt to now, is nearly 400 years. You know, if, uh, if you did something to somebody, and they don't come back on you for it for a while, you pretty much know you're off the hook. You know, they're going to forget. The statute of limitations is going to run out. Whatever. So if you can wait it out long enough and nothing happens, you're probably in the clear. That is not true with the Lord. God has an infinite memory. He had not executed this wrath against Amalek for almost four centuries, but he does not forget to punish them. Think about people who die unforgiving. God never forgets. So that's kind of a, a sobering thing. So he sends Saul to utterly destroy these Amalekites. Utterly destroy means what? Utterly destroy. Kill them all. People and animal. This is an execution 
for the Lord. This is not Saul's battle. This is God's. Saul would not have the right to just decide on his own he's going to utterly destroy the Amalekites. But God has the right to decide that and to use Saul and his army as his instruments to do that. I think it would be very helpful as we go through this story to make some parallels. Do we face any battles? Are we soldiers for the Lord? <laughs> and has God given us, us any orders about utterly destroying anything? Sin, the flesh, those kind of, yeah. So you might be thinking about, obviously our battles are spiritual, therefore physical, but I think you can make some good parallels if you'll think about that as we go through. Now, does Saul have the troops to do the job? Yeah, very much so. Look at verse 4, and he's got, you know, uh, definitely what he needs. And he's able to easily defeat them, which he does. Verse 7. He could utterly destroy them. But what does Saul do? Yes, some of the animals and Agag, he does not utterly destroy. Um, everything else he utterly destroys, but the best animals and Agag, he doesn't. What do you see in that? Disobey God. Well, he obeyed. <laughs> some of them what? He's doing what he wants to. Did he obey? Well, he did, didn't he? He utterly destroyed a lot of them. <laughs> that's what he's going to say. Uh, you know, sometimes that's the way we look. Well, I, I, I wiped out most of my sins. Jason? Well, you know, I mean, serving God, you know, 90%, you know, is not, it's 0%. I mean, you, if you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to. We've got to throw ourselves completely into it and do what he says completely. Otherwise, it's like we've not obeyed anything. I think that's right. I, the Lord is not going to see this as obedience at all. Saul did. You know, but it's not. God said utterly destroyed. They didn't utterly destroy. Right? Saul appeared to agree with destroying the people, but he didn't agree with destroying the animals and Agag, so he did what Saul wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes our will coincides with God's will a good part of the time. But if we only do God's will when it coincides with ours, we're not really doing God's will at all. It just happens to be that his will and our will are the same part of the time. Alex. From the passage, it seems like God is giving uh, Saul another chance to obey him. Because we see Saul is continually disobeying God and not trusting God and not doing what God says. And God is giving him another chance hey, this is what I want you to do. And Saul, again, fails to do it. Good point. I agree. Yes, uh, Andrew. I think Saul's kind of fallen into the trap that he thinks he knows better than God. And that's something that we can do a lot very easily. Think, well, yeah, I was given a specific <laughs> command, but God would really like this if I did this. Yes, good point. We, we really need to trust the Lord. Yeah. I constantly think of Isaiah 55, and uh, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
And Saul never realizes that, and he always thinks that his plan is so much smarter than God's plan. And we'll see in a second here how he even thought, you know, God will be pleased if I spare um, these, you know, the best so I could sacrifice to him. Um, so he thought his plan was better than God's. You need trust in God, brother. I kind of like how in verse 1, Samuel kind of reminds him of who anointed him and how he came king in the first place. You know, God, how did he anoint you? Now listen to what he says. I think we kind of need to be reminded every once in a while who we are. That we're Christians, now act like it. Exactly. Like it. <clears throat> I think it's always amazing to me how different Jonathan and Saul they are and how Jonathan came to be a spawn of Saul and how, how, how in the world they can... Saul always thinks he knows what God wants, but Jonathan truly knows what God wants. He wants the faith, and Jonathan knew what he needed to do to, to win the battle. They didn't say, why would you not feed your sword? That doesn't make sense. He, he understands he had the faith, but he also has come sense. Saul has none of those. Jonathan really outgrew his raising, didn't he? Uh, Josh? Sorry, I keep having all these questions, but and well, as long as I can answer, it's okay. If I can't, you're not allowed to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, where he talks specifically about the Amalekites, and he mentions the Kenites enduring forever. Um, would it? Would we just understand that as maybe superseding any kind of, uh, since that was a prophecy of God, any kind of commitment to the people of the land that they weren't supposed to make? The Kenites apparently were considered to be uh, allies of the Lord and his people even earlier on seemed to be associated with Moses' father-in-law so there seemed to always been special connection with the Kenites and they weren't really considered the people of the land. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Logan? Yeah, I think it's just uh, intriguing to me how, you know, we, we talk about how Saul considered his will more important than God's um, really, it was just a coinciding. He wasn't really obeying God at all. But you don't see Saul saying, my will is more important than God's will. You know, sometimes we look at these kinds of stories and we want to, you know, look how awful they are. But the fact of the matter is we don't have to be saying what we're doing in order to be doing the same things. We do the same things all the time. We just don't call it that. Good point. Chuck? Is, is there any connection between Agag and the Naaman? being an Amalekites, and then Haman and his sons being wiped out, and the Amalekites being I think so. I think Haman was an Amalekite, and I think there is a strong connection. So I would tip. What the idea of God punishing a generation long after he just didn't commit the sin that God's punishing before? Well, good question. I don't know if I have a perfect answer I think my answer would be the Amalekites continue in the same line. These are not Amalekites who've repented. These are Amalekites who are continuing to perpetuate this sinful attitude, and therefore God has the right to punish them, much as he did the Jews of the generation after Jesus because they filled up the cup of iniquity. That, that would be my answer. All right, why don't we take a little break here? Uh, we've done really good. I appreciate your attention. Word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul, and as he and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. 
Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote the destruction to sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. God interacts with his creatures in real time. As they <coughs> obey or don't obey, as they trust or don't trust, God responds to them. Uh, so, so God uh, regrets that he made Saul king. In other words, this makes God sad now that Saul is king. God, God responds as man responds. For he has turned back from following me. Would you have said that? <coughs> He's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. The simple fact that he spared some Amalekite stock and their king meant he's turned back from following me. Would you have thought that it had that serious a consequence? Maybe he didn't quite obey everything, but from God's perspective, he's not following me any longer. And, well, it's interesting. How does that make Samuel feel? Upset. Yeah, he's very upset. He cries all night. Samuel. Seems to have an attachment to Saul, which is interesting. Samuel gets up early in the morning, goes to Saul. Samuel's told Saul's in Carmel where he's setting up a monument to himself. Isn't that interesting? And then he's on his way to Gilgal. The place where he was made king by the people will be the place he's rejected by God. Samuel arrives at Saul. Fascinating. Who speaks first, at least in this narrative? Saul. And what does Saul say? Blessed are you of the Lord. Yeah. Blessed are you of the Lord. I 
carried out the command of the Lord. I carried out the command of the Lord. What did the Lord say in 11? Utterly destroy everything. Yeah, but in, in verse 11. He did not carry out my command. He did not carry out my command. I see a little bit of a discrepancy there. Don't you? You know, God said to Samuel, Saul did not carry out my command. Saul says to Samuel, I carried out the Lord's command. It's not good when we don't have the same opinion as the Lord does. Um, what do you see in Saul right there? Denial. Denial? This to me is just like in chapter 13 where he didn't wait for Samuel and he thought that his idea was something really great for God but it wasn't God's plan and he just obeyed for God's glory but it wasn't working. <laughs> yes. And you know, is he trying to kind of proactively um, you know, sort of uh, interpret this for Samuel before Samuel has a chance to find out what's really happened. You know, sometimes when, you know, what, what do you think about, you, you come into the kitchen and, and the first thing your child said is, I didn't eat a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> You've had that experience, haven't you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <coughs> strikes me as Saul's a little bit uh, eager to tell his side of the story. <laughs> Uh, he's trying to conceal his guilty conscience, perhaps, uh, but he immediately, proactively says, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I love Samuel. What does he ask? What then is the bleeding of the sheep I hear? <clears throat> uh, what about these animal noises? I'm hearing sheep and cows. Uh, what, what's all that about? Isn't that a great question? You know, it is so difficult for Saul to say he's carried out the commands of the Lord because uh, there's some noises in the background that are sort of giving him away. And, uh, you know, of course Samuel's not asking this question for information. Uh, he's trying to get Saul to take responsibility for what he's done. <laughs> wow. Saul's answer in verse 15 is a classic. What does he say? They. They. Who's the they? Not me. The people, not me. <laughs> they, they. They they brought them from the Amalekites. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. <laughs> you know, wow, there's so many things wrong with his statement, it's hard to know where to begin. You know, he's shifting the blame, as he seems to have the habit of doing. It's they took them. And in fact, what does he say they took the animals for? Sacrifice. To sacrifice. He puts the case to his best advantage. You know, they, they took them to sacrifice to who? God. The Lord, your God. It really, they took them to sacrifice to your God. Um, how about an our God here? But no, it's, it's for your God. You ought to be happy about that, Samuel. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times uh, a sinner will interpret his actions in such a way that it makes it almost look like it was a good thing. You know, Jason. This could have been an I told you so moment for Samuel in that, you know, he was distressed when they made, you know, when they wanted, they wanted the king. You know, if it was me in Samuel's situation here, I would have been, I would have kind of reveled in, you know, in, in Saul's failures here. 
uh, and then somewhat glad because you know, all right, this is this is what you you asked for. But Samuel here is distressed, cries out all night. I mean, he's, his heart is in the right place. He he didn't want to see Saul fail. He wanted he wanted to see Saul do what is right. Um, but uh, you know. excellent point. That do we sort of root for the failure of some of the brethren that we're not very happy with or, or see as enemies. I, I think that is a very good heart, very good attitude on Saul's part. And uh, I wonder if we don't say about the same thing Saul did. You know, uh, I know I, I committed this sin and that sin, but the rest of my sins I've utterly destroyed. I mean, there just seems something really uh, that doesn't fit about saying we spared this and this, and, but the rest we utterly destroyed. I would say that was not utter destruction, wouldn't you? Yeah. I think there's a parallel to be drawn between Saul and then uh, specifically the denominational church today. A lot of times they say, well, you know, we did this, but it was for, you know, God, it was for benevolence, it was for this reason. And when it comes down to it, regardless, if it's not God's will, it's not good. Amen. That's exactly right. You know, even if it looks good to us, if it's not good to God, it's not good. And, uh, you know, it looks to me like Saul is trying to redefine what it means to obey. That you can have this selective thing. The rest have utterly destroyed. Well, if you haven't utterly destroyed all of them, you haven't utterly destroyed. You know, that's, that's the way that goes. But we, again, he tries to make it look good. It's so easy for us to justify ourselves. And that, to say things in such a way that it makes it look good. We have to really, you know, concentrate on that. And uh, I, I think Saul is just such a great example of what not to be. Um, thoughts and comments through 15. Yeah, sir. Uh, the word confession literally means to speak the same thing. Uh, when we confess sins, is to speak the same thing about sins the way God speaks about sins, and, and especially in prayer. Uh, when we see uh, Samuel recognize the sin, not in himself, but in other people, and see the hurt that is given to God, he cries all night. Uh, God hurting makes Samuel hurt. Saul sins, he can... You know, he kind of confesses here, but he doesn't speak the same way about his sin, the way that God speaks about his sin. When we go to God in prayer to confess our sins, it should hurt us, realize how much it hurts God, uh, and we should speak the same thing about how terrible our sin is before God and, and tell him about it. It's more than just that, that short little phrase, God, just clean, cleanse me of my sins and there's no pain involved. You ever tried to confess your sin to somebody? Maybe you were even confessing a sin you committed in some other context, but you're trying to open up and tell somebody about your sin, and by the time you get done doctoring it up, it doesn't sound anything like what you did. You're trying to make yourself look better. I've done that before. I've, I've confessed, but, but I lied. You know, my confession wasn't really honest in owning up fully to what I'd done. We have such a tendency to make ourselves look better. Yeah. Uh, I have a teacher that says, don't be reading into things. Don't be a but what if er. Don't be a but what if er. Because I think that soul read into things like, well, I think God really meant that I should keep things for sacrificing, and I think that's good. 
But when we read into the scriptures, we're like, we shouldn't take out things that we want. Well, but what if God wants this too? Like he says for us to love and to to help others, but, but what if God wants us to use the money to help them from the church? But what if this would be good? And we can't do that just like Saul, Saul does. And I'm not saying that Saul just misunderstood what God said. I'm saying like he's interjecting his own ideas. Yeah. Maybe he thought his idea was better. <laughs> but that's a lot of trust in God. We really show how much we really believe God by whether or not we follow what he says or whether or not we sort of redefine what we think God ought to have said. I think it's an interesting character contrast. Saul is explicitly told, this is what you are to do. And yet he's making all these excuses. Whereas Jonathan in the last chapter... Jonathan doesn't even know, and yet he owns up to what he did. He says, I will die. So, uh, good point. Being open and, and honest is often. I had a teacher once say that it was against the wiring in our brains to point the finger back at ourselves. Just because it's so much of a harder action to do rather than just to point out someone else and say, you know, it was their fault. If it wasn't my fault, it was, it was them. You know, the Bible should be seen first as a mirror before we see it as a window. It should show us our own faults before it shows us someone else's. Sometimes we struggle with that. Good, good thought. Good thought. This whole instance reminds me of the passage in James. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Here, um, Saul, he was keeping the law, but he stumbled in one point or two points, not keeping the king and the animals. And that would make him guilty of all, and that made him disobeying and not keeping God's law. Do we really obey God? And that's really the question. All right. So, yeah, I've got something to tell you that the Lord told me last night. He said, you were little in your own eyes when you made head of the, the tribes of Israel. You were humble back there. And the Lord sent you on this mission to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? So Samuel really puts it to him plain, this is what God told me, you did not obey. This is uh, uh, a retake of the test. You know, it's the second chance. He's got the second, more thorough you know, expose. What's he going to say? Saul said to Samuel 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Now what did the Lord say? He did not. He has a terrible habit of saying the very opposite of what the Lord says about it. As uh, Seth was saying about confess, we really need to be saying the same thing about ourselves that God does. And he's not. He says, I went on the mission which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag the king and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. You know, this is so funny. If he brought back Agag, he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. Well, I sinned here, here, and here, but I utterly destroyed my sins. That's a non sequitur. It doesn't fit. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen. The choicest of the things devoted to destruction and sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Saul is defensive. He makes excuse, excuses. He fails to take responsibility for what he's done. There's not a whole lot you can do until someone's willing to acknowledge 
and owed up to their sins. We, you don't do that. But that is fundamental. We need to be men and women of God. And when we sin, we need to say so and not qualify it a thousand ways to make ourselves look better. Brandon. A lot of times excuses people make when they do sin is that, you know, we all have weaknesses. We all sin. But we shouldn't, you know, we do have all, we all have weaknesses, we all sin, but we shouldn't make that excuse to sin. It's amazing how many things we say to minimize, to shift the blame, to make ourselves look better. Why? That is the wrong approach. But it is so tempting. Andrew? Um, I think that's one of the huge differences between Saul and David. Um, you know, here we see, I mean, in this case, in the case before that, we see Saul trying to shift the blame elsewhere. But when David is confronted about his sin with Bathsheba, he immediately owns up to it and says, I have sinned. Amen. Exactly. Josh. Saul's poor character not only reflects on him personally, but it shows in his ability to lead the people. His excuse for his sin also shows that he had no leadership, that the people could do these things, and he didn't have any command over them is a ridiculous thing to try to say. He was the king, and even if they did try to do that, he should have put a stop to well, it. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that is that is a, a flimsy excuse, J.D. Uh, verse 21, he said that the people did this. He looked spoiled. Um, I, I see a real contrast or similarity between Saul's taking responsibility and Eli's taking responsibility. Whereas they both kind of feel like, oh, but because my son or because my kingdom does this, I'm not really responsible. But instead, God not only calls us to really be responsible for our own actions, he expects the king to lead the people. He expects fathers to lead their house, like Joshua. As for me and my house, will serve the Lord. Well, Joshua, how can you make your family serve the Lord? Well, you kind of can in some ways. That's your responsibility. And uh, Joshua takes responsibility for his descendants in a way that Eli doesn't, in a way that Saul doesn't. And uh, we have to take responsibility where it's been given to us. <coughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, shifting the blame to those who are under your command <coughs> is really a, a lame excuse. I mean, we've got politicians who will do that, you know, or coaches who will do that, or whatever. They'll kind of wink. Uh, so that they're not implicated in what they know is going on and what they're allowing or even promoting. Justin. I think uh, in verse uh, 20 and 21, his sentence structure there uh, automatically kind of shows that he didn't follow what God said and shows that he knows he didn't because he says, I did, and then 21, but. And if we, if we are actually following God's will, there won't be a but after what we say. You know, there won't be, if if he had followed God's will, he wouldn't have said but after his statement there. Great point, Nathan. You really look at Saul and he just looks so confused. Um, and I think like sin has that way of, I guess, deceiving us to connect actually my personal soul to my personal action and responsibility. And I mean, I look at Saul, we look at Saul and it could almost say, well, how foolish but I mean, we, we really find it easy to connect the dots to other people and their sins much than ourselves. And you know, you, you think of maybe areas of like entertainment and things like that to where, you know, you might see people whose standards aren't what they should be, um, but then you don't really look at your own standards very closely and, you know, you preach a good lesson about holiness or talk about, you know, standing for the Lord. 
um, and maybe try to motivate people to, to step up, but you're not doing it yourself, and it's plain as day to anyone watching you. Yeah, good point. We generally don't deceive others like we deceive ourselves. That's for sure. Gary. So, yes, Chris. With uh, Saul making the, you were talking about making our confessions or whatever, and how we try to water them down, and Saul doing that thing here. I think if, you know, if we had been Samuel, what would our response have been? And maybe that's more detrimental sometimes than the person watering down their confession is that we, we're not accepting it. We're saying, well, everybody does that and I can see how you yeah you pretty much carried it out and you did the best you could and don't feel so bad don't feel so bad you know you're not the only one that that has done this and I don't know we don't think we're doing any favors we want to help people feel better instead of helping them be better and Samuel just sticks with right to the word and what's this then you did not yeah you know, I mean, what if I come to a Christian and I'm like, you know, I don't lie about this. I was really in a, I feel terrible. Now, if you go to a non-Christian and you say that, what do you expect? Oh, everybody does, no big deal, no real consequences, fine. You go to a Christian and you say that, if they don't help you take responsibility and take it seriously, no one will. This is our responsibility with our brothers and sisters to help them and, and, and motivate them to take their sins seriously. That, wow, if we don't, they are in trouble. So it's something we have to really take uh, with a great deal of, of consciousness. Samuel here says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You think that because you took it to sacrifice, I suspect that was a later interpretation of what they were doing anyway. But either way, the Lord wants obedience, not sacrifice. Stephen. Yeah. Uh, just Samuel's reaction here is really helpful because, I mean, he could have, we know his heart because of verse, uh, verse 11, where he's distressed and he, and he cries all night. He's not just coming to Saul with this, I'm just going to make you feel bad. I mean, He's mourning over Saul's sin. But then he comes and tells him exactly what he needs to hear. Sometimes we go too far one direction or the other. We mourn and then want to soften the message. Or we just come out, you know, swinging for the fences and destroy people. But Samuel has a really good balance here uh, of how to approach. Good point. Yeah, very good. John? Uh, Saul kind of reminds me of myself as a kid sometimes with parents and such, you know, you take out the trash to kind of pacify your parents, you know, a little bit, um, but not really, you know, committed. And I'm trying, and you can probably help me out, but like, trying to figure out what state his heart is at now. And it's hard to figure out, like, it, has he totally given up, or is he just trying to go through the motions? Because, I mean, this is a simple commandment, he missed it totally. Well, we've already seen he's prideful, he's not trusting the Lord. But we, we so often try to deceive ourselves into still feeling okay and pacify our conscience when the rest we utterly destroyed kind of a thing. We rarely acknowledge to ourselves, I just don't care about God anymore and I'm going to do what I want to. It's much easier if we can sort of justify to ourselves, even though we're not concerned about the will of the Lord and are doing what we want to. 
I suspect that's more his situation. Terry. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So to me, it's obvious. It's all about exactly. Amen. GR. I recall the very beginning of the, of the world. Adam said, it was that woman you give me. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman that you give me that caused me to do this. Not yeah, yeah, we have uh, plenty of precedent for Shet's, uh, shifting the blame, uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily make it a good uh, uh, exercise for us. Well, what's going to happen from here? You know, I mean, we've had this confrontation, and, you know, uh, Samuel ended by saying, verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Looks to me like the rejection of Saul's kingship comes in three stages. He lost his dynasty, chapter 13, the announcement of the loss of his kingship, chapter 15, and his actual death, in chapter 31, that causes the kingship to pass from him, just as he gained the kingship in three stages. But Saul is not eager to accept this verdict. So, 24 to 35. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to gold, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Finally, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Wonderful, right? He confesses. Took a long time, but he takes responsibility. Or so it appears. Is it possible to actually say, I have sinned, and still not really be confessing and repenting? I think that's his situation, and I think that's a very dangerous trap for us. Sometimes we think if we say what we have to say, that then we're good. What makes you think Saul was not so sincere in this confession? He's still making excuses. Like, what does he say? Because he feared the people's why he didn't. Yes! 
He said, I said to my great people. Like, wow, it gives you whiplash almost going back and forth on this one. You know, he, he, he says it and then he takes it back in the next clause. He's not really, you know, taking responsibility. He's getting, uh, succumbing to that perennial tendency to throw the responsibility to somebody else. Nathan. It also comes right after uh, Samuel points out he's going to lose the only thing that really matters to him. Yes. This is more he's trying to figure out a way to keep the kingdom than that he's convicted about the sinfulness of his actions. So, also, I think it may be evident that he's worried about covering it up and maintaining his dignity in front of the people. This is what he's so concerned about is Samuel continuing on with him. Exactly. Do you see that? He's worried about Samuel coming back and worshiping the Lord with him to honor him before the people. How many times do we say it just because we want to look okay before the people? We don't want to be rejected before the people. Make sure the people think I'm doing okay. We are way too worried about what people are going to think about us and not worried enough about what God's going to think. We talked about that yesterday, but we're right back to that same idea today is he wants to be honored before the people. We've got to really search our heart on this. Because I think there's so many times that we are much more worried about what brothers are going to say. What are the brethren going to think? How do we look? We put all... Now, I'm talking about how we look physically. And how do you look spiritually before the people? Don't do that in front of them. Don't say that in front of them. Make sure before them I look spiritual. That we become obsessed with impressions we leave. That's really very distracting to trying to do the right thing. You know, how can... I, sometimes people have asked things like, now, how can I get people to see me as being a strong Christian? <coughs> I don't know. But the thing you need to do is be a strong Christian. You know, you be a strong Christian. Don't worry about trying to get people to see you that way. Probably sooner or later, if you are, people may see you that way. But being it is much more what you're working on, being seen. How, how can I be a good example of the right thing? You know, we're all, well, I, I want to I, I look good. No, you don't. Just be good. Be what God wants you to be. But what is Saul concerned about? Public support. Honor me before the people. Saul seemed to have been the kind of man who could think about very little other than himself. And when a person reaches that point, he doesn't have much to think about. And that seems to be Saul's situation. Thoughts? Comments? Yes? I think right now, is like the Israelites really got what they wanted for it from in a king, a king that uh, c that's concerned about what they think about him <laughs> and God, what God thinks about him. Yeah, good point. That's right. Love we have uh, these statements about how, you know, we shouldn't be so concerned with what people think about us. And then I think about that in relation to, I believe it's First Thessalonians 5, that tells us to avoid all appearance of evil. What, what's the balance between those two now and those two poorly? That's a uh, King James expression. Does it mean avoid the things that look evil? It means avoid evil everywhere it appears. <laughs> Newer translations said avoid every form of evil. 
So not appearance in the sense of it looks that way. Jesus did a lot of things that looked wrong. Like he didn't wash his hands before he ate. He didn't observe their fasting traditions. You know, things like that. It's saying, avoid every type of evil. So we need to pick up what that's really saying. Josh? In verse 25, is it indicating that Saul seems to think that the issue lies between him and Samuel as opposed to him and God? Maybe. 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 Samuel's the guy who support he needs, because that's the guy that the people are going to respect. I don't know that he really thinks that much about God himself. So, somebody over here at the end of the it's amazing just how much rejection God God puts up with. When Israel first asked for a king, he says, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me from being king over them. And here, Saul fears the people, and he doesn't fear the Lord. Uh, and because he's rejected God, God's going to reject him. And it's amazing how much God puts up with it, uh, and how all of this really, we take things personally, we look at ourselves, but God takes these things personally. And it's him who's ultimately being rejected in all this. You're exactly right. Good point. Dan? Uh, it seems like there's times in my life where uh, I, I go through ruts and uh, people's opinions it matters too much to me. And then I look at, at, at Saul here. This is a miserable way to live. Um, you see that, that Saul is not happy. Saul is not content. Saul is torn in so many different directions. And that's exactly what we're going to be and our life's going to be like if we decide to have more than one master. Um, it's going to be miserable. And we just need to focus upon one person's opinion. That's the Lord's. And wow, our life will be full of relief. That's a very good point. Amen. Very good point. Amen. And so, uh, we got the problem of Agag. So Samuel, Samuel does go back. Samuel, but it, it doesn't change anything. Samuel says, bring Agag to me. And Agag's saying, okay, everything will be okay now. And Samuel cuts Agag to pieces before the Lord. He executes the Lord's judgment. And then he goes back home. And he quits being Saul's advisor. He quits being uh, the messenger of God to Saul from here on out. Saul's essentially on his own. He's rejected the Lord. The Lord rejected him. When you continue on in your life away from the Lord, it goes one direction down. And that's what we'll see in Saul from here on out. Comments and thoughts on chapter 15. Yeah, uh, it's so encouraging to see in the last verse uh, how Samuel's attitude towards those who don't serve God, that he grieves over Saul, and that he he hurts, and that he has pain because he understands what this means. And so often we have friends and we have family members that we are so close to, but we do not grieve and we do not have pain because they don't follow the Lord. And here he's grieving over the, uh, the, the, the bad life and the rejection of his successor, of his rival it could be. Do, would we grieve that our, uh, our competitor in the congregation is, is not doing well? You know, we, we kind of thrive on that. I knew it wouldn't do well anyway. You know, I'm a lot better than people. You know, I think Samuel shows a lot of unselfishness, lack of jealousy, and things like that in this. Okay. All right, chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 5. The Lord said to Samuel, 